1: Tonight we find ourselves on the planet V9 Gamma in the far future of 2021. Our friends here arrived in 1991 on the ship Pilgrim One, hoping to leave behind the war-torn planet Earth for a life of peace, a new beginning. But as we stand here in the heat of its two suns, watching its residents queue for their daily ration of water we can see that this wasn't a new beginning at all and in fact for many of the settlers here it was their end. Thankfully the people in this extraordinary situation have an extraordinary man as their leader.
2: How's the water George? Hot, flat and unforgettable but wet. Well, bear with it, folks, bear with it. Six months' time, we'll all be drinking chocolate ice cream, soda.
1: <laughs> now that's Captain William Benteen, a man who raises spirits, but isn't afraid to raise his voice just a little, to dish out some discipline if someone isn't playing fair. The settlers here spend their days hoping for rescue to take them back to Earth. But as our distinguished host is about to tell us, Soon their prayers will be answered by a ship. But in the original script, Rod Serling's opening narration was a little different, and a little longer. And it went, this is a village without a name, on a planet that needs no name. 50 years earlier, at the end of the 20th century, a spaceship called the Pioneer One landed a hundred people on its barren, lonely landscape. They had only one mission, that was to survive, and this they did, they and their children, and then their children's children, until the memory of the Earth they came from became an indistinct and shadowed memory of another place, another time. They built their homes, made their food, married, delivered their children, and survived, and Earth wracked with wars and with the normal earthly preoccupations of the killing of one another, began to forget them, lose contact with them, and finally, to abandon them. One month ago, a signal from Earth announced that a ship would be coming to pick them up and take them home. In just a moment, we'll hear more of that ship, more of that home, and what it takes out of mind and body to reach you. This is the Twilight Zone. So that's how it started. But let's hear our it ended up. So pack your things, because on Thursday, we leave for home.
0: This is William Benteen, who officiates on a disintegrating outpost in space. The people are a remnant society, who left the earth looking for a millennium. A place without war, without jeopardy, without fear. And what they found was a lonely, barren place whose only industry was survival. And this is what they've done for three decades, survive. Until the memory of the Earth they came from has become an indistinct and shadowed recollection of another time and another place. One month ago, a signal from Earth announced that a ship would be coming to pick them up and take them home. In just a moment, we'll hear more of that ship. More of that home and what it takes out of mind and body to reach it. This is The Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on May 2nd, 1963. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Buzz Kulik. So this is the second to last season four episode written by Rod Serling. And there's not much to say about his opening narration here. I think it's a good one. It's a little poetic and a little expository. I think he did right to maybe cut down that original draft a little bit. It was a bit long and a bit wordy. And as we see, there are elements of the story that are a little bit different too. But what he ended up with, it doesn't give anything away about what's to come. But we get a little more rounding out of the story. These people left in search of peace. But unfortunately, where they found themselves was this hot, inhospitable desert planet. And tonight it's time to bid a fond farewell to one of the Twilight Zone's great directors, Buzz Kulik. With nine episodes to his name, he definitely left his mark on the show. Starting out in season two with King Nine Will Not Return, he then directed The Trouble with Templeton, Static, 100 Yards Over the Rim, The Mind and the Matter, A Quality of Mercy, Jess Bell, and now on thursday we leave for home so there are definitely some classics there and let's see tonight whether he goes out on a strong one so where did buzz cooler go from here well he just kept on doing what he did directing episodes of television for many different shows and he enjoyed a stint directing feature films as well and then he did several television movies like the 1974 tv movie bad ronald Starring Twilight Zone alumni John Larch And Planet of the Apes star Kim Hunter And his 1971 television movie Brian Song Was so successful that it actually went on to have a cinema release After it was played on television And he ended his career with the 1990 TV movie Miles From Nowhere So hopefully he enjoyed his retirement from the business that he gave so much to before he passed away nine years later, on January 13th 1999, at the age of 76. So here on this barren, inhospitable planet, let’s raise our barely filled water canteens and toast Buzz Kulik and thank him for his work on the Twilight Zone. Now early on in the episode after the opening narration, we get a scene where Benteen is speaking with one of the settlers. One who is trying his best to use what meagre resources he has to repair a cooling system. And they're in a situation where if something breaks, they don't have the means to replace those parts. And they are robbing Peter to pay Paul sometimes. Taking things from one piece of machinery to keep another going. But if you watch this scene at 5 minutes and 55 seconds into the episode, you can see the boom mic sticking up from the right of the shot. But hey, maybe I'm mistaken, and maybe it was one of their crewmates just holding a piece of machinery for them that looks a bit like a boom mic. So yeah, we'll go with that one. But what this scene further reinforces to us though is how pivotal to the morale of these people Benteen is. We've already seen it earlier in the scene where people are queuing up for water, the little pep talks he gives, To raise people's spirits. And then he'll walk away. And only then does he allow the weariness or the worry. That he must feel every day. To show on his face. And we see it again here. But this time. His moment of personal reflection. Is short lived. Because he's called outside. Where we see the tragic sight of a woman's legs. Dangling into shot. A woman who has taken her own life by hanging herself and I have to say I was quite surprised at how graphic this depiction was I know we only see it from the waist down but it is such a suggestive image and anyone who's been in the unfortunate position to see this firsthand knows how horrifying it looks in the part that we don't see so in this time when sensors and sponsors could get so bent out of shape by so many things I do wonder whether they received any notes on this particular scene.
2: Say your farewells now. And ask God's forgiveness for what she has done. Forgive her, Lord.
3: Father,
1: forgive her... for what she's done.
2: She didn't know what she was doing, Lord. She knew what she was doing. Better and clearer than any of the rest of us. This is a funeral hour. The ninth in the last six months, the ninth. This woman and the others took their lives because living became intolerable. I say that dying was their right. That's a blasphemy. It's the truth. Isn't living tough enough here? We shouldn't have to go by the book. Isn't it hot enough and miserable enough? There shouldn't be rules. We shouldn't have to suffer by the numbers.
1: I think this is pretty potent stuff for the time. Here we have a character Questioning whether suicide is a sin under these circumstances. Asking why if living is tough enough, should they still live by the book? And I think we really need to pay attention to the language he uses here because is it sailing giving that comment an intentional double meaning because the true intent of what the character is saying could just be too provocative for the time? On the one hand, doing something by the book is simply doing it by the rules. But when there's a man stood in front of you holding a Bible and calling what you say blasphemy, then it's pretty clear what book he's talking about. And that's also another thing that censors at the time were very, very conscious of. Now we have a pretty large cast here, but most of them are these kind of peripheral supporting roles and add to the whole rather than having arcs of their own. But I think one of the most prominent ones is Al Baines and he's the dark-haired gentleman who we've just heard speaking with Benteen at the graveside. And Al is played by an actor called James Broderick who is the father of the actor Matthew Broderick. Now while they're at the graveside of the poor woman who has taken her life, if we look around We can see that the landscape seemingly stretches off into the distance and unlocking the door to a television classic prints a quote from starlog magazine where the actor tim o'connor said they constructed the entire set for that episode there was no possible way the camera could have moved without picking up the landscape they designed the set was enormous mgm studios was like a production factory back then They saved every costume, every prop, and the mountain set they built stood there for years, so it could be reused. Some executive must have choked when they saw the budget, and I'm not surprised they didn't tear down the set after we finished that episode. And I have to say, I think this is one of the best looking Twilight Zone episodes I've ever seen. The combination of sets on a stage, like the living quarters, the caves... And the area where they queue up for their water. And then these huge matte paintings of the landscape are just wonderful. And I don't think they're wonderful because they look realistic. But I think they're wonderful in their kind of beautiful artificiality. And the pictures of the rocks and the mountains in the distance that are casting shadows. Is reminiscent of those season 1 opening credits and the effect is almost impressionistic. And then they're able to create this marvelous effect of a meteor storm, and if you watch it, it looks like it's achieved by a combination of throwing small rocks or pieces of dirt onto the stage and then laying over optical special effects. Now I can't find any explanation as to how that was achieved, but it looks like they filmed firecrackers being thrown and then bouncing along the ground. And then they've just laid down over the shots. And if you look closely, you can see that those sparking meteorites are not really there, but Buzz Cooler keeps the shots moving, keeps the people moving. So the effect of all these moving parts really helps them to pull off this wonderful effect.
2: You're not scared, are you JoJo? Kinda,
4: Captain.
2: Well, we can't have you being scared. Let you and me talk a bit, huh? Pass the time.
4: Captain, tell us about the Earth.
2: Do that, Captain, would you? Tell us about the Earth as you remember it. Again, Jerry? All right, I'll talk about it. Bran, you and Hank fill in any holes I leave. If I'm wrong about any of my recollections, you correct me, will you? Jojo, I was just a boy when we arrived here. I was 15 years old, but I remember the Earth. I remember it as a place, a place of color. I remember, Jojo, that in the autumn, Jojo, in the autumn, the leaves changed, turned different colors, red, orange, gold. I remember streams of water that flowed down hillsides, and the water was sparkling and clear.
1: So Benteen isn't just making this speech for Jojo, as Mark Zickry says in the Twilight Zone Companion, he's saying it for everyone. And here I think we have a perfect combination of Rod Serling's words and an actor who is just knocking it out of the park, delivering them. So let's meet him. Captain Benteen is played by the great James Whitmore and talk about an actor's actor. He was born in 1921 in New York, so, so 100 years ago this year. And like many of our Twilight Zone stars, he served as country as a Marine in World War II. And again, like several of the Twilight Zone stars, his path to acting came via the GI Bill following an honorable discharge. Now the GI Bill was designed to assist American service people in integrating into society... By providing things like low-cost mortgages and loans, free education, or at least education that was paid up to a certain amount. It was a whole array of things designed to make getting back into society that bit easier. And for Whitmore, that meant training as an actor. And it was on the stage where he first made his mark, most notably playing to what he knew as a military veteran in the play command decision, where he played Tech Sergeant Evans. And it wasn't long before the big screen called, and one of his most famous screen successes was again in the realms of the military in the 1949 movie Battleground. And the first half of the 50s were a very prolific time for Whitmore, where he had parts in three to four movies a year. But when television started to become the big thing, That's where he spent most of the late 50s, hitting several anthologies like Craft Theatre or Schlitz Playhouse, and of course Playhouse 90. And The Twilight Zone isn't his only Rod Sailing connection. He also appears in two episodes of Sailing's next series, The Loner, where he plays Doc Fritchman in the two-parter, The Mourners, for Johnny Sharp. And I feel like there are probably a ton of James Whitmore performances in his resume that students of that era will know more than me, but perhaps one of his most recognisable roles later on, is as Brooks in the 1994 film The Shawshank Redemption. James Whitmore, the man who benefited so much from the GI Bill that brought him back into society, playing the ex-con who had spent so long inside... That he just couldn't integrate back into society i am a big fan of james whitmore and he might not have those typically leading man looks but he has an interesting face with those big bushy eyebrows and a smile that seems to stretch from ear to ear and i find him such a magnetic presence on screen but if you've ever seen him interviewed too he has a wonderful sense of humor and a great deadpan delivery Or how is he in this? Well I won't mince my words on this one, but James Whitmore's performance as Captain Benteen has instantly skyrocketed to one of my favourite Twilight Zone performances of all time. When we meet him, he is every bit the man we would want to lead us in a situation like they are in. Calm and kind, sometimes strict, ready to make the difficult decisions, ...but always fair. But it's all about that progression. As the situation changes around him... ...we see that while Benteen led the group for all the right reasons... ...he wants to hold on to that authority... ...for all the wrong ones. But it's the switch that Whitmore handles so well. The way he pushes this character's journey along... ...taking these small steps to change him from this... ...wonderful altruistic leader to what we end up with later on. Before you know it, you're left in no doubt that this was a good man who has just let the power go to his head. But I don't think Whitmore goes very big with his performance. And with a character journey like this, if a different actor had decided to go a bit bigger with it, it might have been the right choice. It probably could have worked. But I think Whitmore keeps things so grounded which gives him the room to turn things up a little bit later on and gives him that great range to work with and i think he pitches this perfectly and it truly is a twilight zone performance for the ages
4: mr benteen i'm benteen colonel sloan commanding the galaxy six our orders are to transport you all back to earth traveling for six and a half months! A oh, hundred <laughs> times more than that! We've been waiting 30 years! And we got your message two months ago, and then we listened and listened!
0: We did not we, we did it! There was nothing more! Well, we tried
4: to transmit to you, Mr. Benteen, but we just simply couldn't get through. But when we heard your acknowledgement, we knew that you'd received the initial message. Tell me, does it all look like this? I mean, the whole place? Yes, yes, it all looks like this. Craggy mountains,
2: salt flats, two suns, perpetually shining. <laughs> Yes, it all looks like this. 30 years! Yes, 30 years. Why, there are people
4: here who have never seen the Earth, Colonel. Some of our older people don't remember what it looks like. Well, they'll see it now. Our orders are to get you on board as soon as possible. We figured that you should be ready to leave on Thursday. That'll give you three days to arrange things.
1: So by the time the rescue ship lands, we are 17 and a half minutes into this episode. So when we consider the season 4 question of episode length, we have to ask ourselves did we need all of that build up before the ship actually lands? 17 and a half minutes is almost the length of a regular episode. But I have to say, I didn't feel a minute of it. Because it's all character, character, character. We see the hardships these people face and we see how Benteen supports them in different ways. And not only that, but the complexities of the support that he gives them. Sometimes it's a pep talk, other times it's ideas, and sometimes it's even a dressing down. And he also fills the role that a priest or a rabbi or other religious leader would fill. So there's so many facets to it. And I don't think there's a moment here that I would want to lose, because the more we know Benteen as the good man that we've seen in the episode so far, the more impactful his downfall is. And the catalyst of that downfall is the arrival of Colonel Sloan and his crew to take them home. And of course it wouldn't be a Twilight Zone set in space without an appearance by the ship and uniforms from Forbidden Planet. But I love this scene, the jubilation of the settlers and then the conversation between Benteen and Colonel Sloan, And on a repeat view and a It just kind of breaks my heart a little. Because you know what Benteen is going to become. But here he's just so happy and gracious. And you want to tell him. Just hold on to that. Don't sabotage it for yourself. And the scene itself is also planting little seeds for later on. Because when he's first talking to Sloane. Benteen doesn't really care. That he's calling him Mr. Benteen. And not Captain Benteen. Because as we find out. Captain is really just a term of endearment, he doesn't hold any rank here, because he was just a child when they came. So at this point, when he's faced with someone who does hold genuine rank, he doesn't seem to care about this title at first. Until Sloane, just in passing, says that he will take responsibility from now on. And it's then that we see the turn, and Benteen corrects Sloane. Telling them to address him as Captain Benteen. So as the settlers pack their things, why don't we meet the man who made that long six and a half months journey to rescue them? Colonel Sloan is played by Tim O'Connor who we only lost quite recently in 2018 at the age of 90. And he was a Chicago native who began his career on the Chicago stage. But it was his move to New York in 1950 that really set his career moving, where he became a hard-working television actor. And he made the rounds of some of our usual shows like The Fugitive and The Defenders. And he's also one of those Twilight Zone actors who appeared in the distinguished competition in two Outer Limits episodes, Moonstone and Soldier. But perhaps what he was known for, certainly for a good four-year chunk of his career, was his role as Elliot Carson on the show Peyton Place, where he clocked up a staggering 416 episodes. And he continued to be a busy television actor for the remainder of his career. But to me, it's another science fiction show that I'll always remember him for, when he played Dr. Elias Hewer in the kitsch classic, Book Rogers in the 25th century. But i think he's fabulous in this too he's always very suited to these kind of roles the professional person whether it's a police officer or a doctor or something along those lines he was very good at projecting a certain amount of authority but i think he's a perfect foil for james whitmore as Benteen as well because in a way it's really james whitmore's show he's really the lead here So the role of Colonel Sloane is really there for Benteen to kind of bounce off. But I think O'Connor is suitably generous in his performance, giving Whitmore just what he needs. But he's also great to look at too with his moments of befuddlement and confusion as to what really is Benteen's problem.
2: As you all know, in less than 36 hours, we'll be departing. Weight allowance has been set at 14 pounds per person. And when we leave here, we'll begin a process of notation. Try and establish what your personal belongings will be and what they will oh. Colonel Sloan. I'm
4: oh, well, not intruding, yes, Captain. Of course you're not intruding. I was yes. just giving him the weight requirements. Oh, we'll handle all that tomorrow. When I heard you were having this meeting, I brought Lieutenant Sengel and Rafferty along with me. You've all been asking so many questions about Earth that I thought perhaps this would be a good time since so you are all together to try and answer a few more. Well, Colonel, the purpose of this meeting is to deal with departure problems. Colonel, my folks were from San Diego. What's California like? Sunny and warm most of the time? <laughs> Los Angeles is the biggest city in the world now. I really feel that these questions can best be answered at a later time.
5: Oh, Colonel Sloan, do they still have public schools?
4: Oh, yes. And they're pretty much the same as they, they were. There's uh the larger, better equipped, more adequately staffed.
1: I have to say. I eat all of these scenes up. James Whitmore is just captivating, watching him as he starts to take umbrage at what he perceives as his authority being undermined at every turn. Take that scene where the settlers are playing baseball with the crew members in the heat, and Benteen is not happy about it because he thinks it's too hot. Now this is an important scene because sure, Benteen could be right, you know, it is very hot, maybe they will overexert themselves and, and suffer as a result. So his concern for them is not a bad thing in and of itself. But it's the first time in the episode that we see Benteen doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. This is a real turning point, where he's no longer just being annoyed by his authority being undermined. He's actively starting... To push back
2: Colonel, when we get aboard your ship you'll be in command you tell us what to do where to go and we'll fall right into line but here in this place
4: i'm in command now mr benti captain ben- i'm not trying to usurp your authority captain i just don't see what harm that a little baseball game well could that's be. not your concern is it Colonel? the well-being of these people there Health?
2: That's my concern.
4: Alex, take two members. Inside the ship. Lower the port. Now, my friends, time to rest. Go to your homes.
2: I'll announce when the new day will begin. Go to your homes. I was never unhappy, Colonel, I just know what's right and what's wrong. I see.
1: Essentially, the rest of the episode is a series of moments like this, and unfortunately, it's kind of typical of these later episodes, where the trivia that is documented in our usual places seems to be getting thinner on the ground than it used to be. So I won't just recount the story beat for beat, but as it moves on, Benteen's need for control only grows. He says that when they get back to Earth, all of his people will stay together. And he compares them to children. But the thing about children is, they don't always want to do what their parents want them to. And none of the settlers want to stay together. And this sets off a sequence of events where Benteen is no longer the man who stands and tells them what a wonderful place Earth is. Now the scenes are becoming twisted mirror images of what's gone before. Instead of standing in the cave telling them about what a wonderful place planet Earth is, he now stands outside the cave and tells them how hard life is there, and why they should stay together, and ultimately why they shouldn't go. And when he tries to get them all to join him in a chant of together, they won't join in. And this is in contrast to earlier on at the graveside, where they were happy to chant with them about the ship coming, happy to show their solidarity with them.
4: We do not belong there. Captain Benteen? Why don't you let your children vote on it? Only if they know what's waiting for them. Only if they know
2: that the Earth is not a garden. Never was a
4: garden and it never will be a garden. Fair enough. Fair enough. then I'll tell you what Earth is. It's a race of men struggling for survival, just as you have survived. And Captain Benteen is quite right when he tells you it isn't a place of all beauty. We may yet have wars, and there still remains prejudice. And I suppose as long as men walk, there will be angry men, jealous men, unforgiving men. But it has one thing that you don't have, one thing. It lets every man be his own master.
1: So ultimately, Benteen, rather than swallowing his pride or allowing himself to become just like everyone else on Earth, he stays and becomes the god of an inhospitable planet with a population of one. And the irony is, had he gone back to Earth, he might not have been the leader of these people anymore, but as Sloan said earlier on, He would have been lionized on his return. He would have been the returning hero. He probably would have done the talk show circuits, written books. You know, the possibilities were endless for what Benteen could have done when he got back, if he'd only gotten on that ship. In his book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, Douglas Brody comments that in individual episodes, Rod Sailing voices his distaste for dictators on both the left and the right, but this is his comment on a benign dictator. He also comments a lot on the religious aspects of the story and calls Benteen a Moses-like figure. He also calls him an anachronistic figure who has outlived his usefulness, a man who warns of false gods, but then becomes one. Now all of this is of course valid, but what it also brings home to me is that we all view things through our own lenses. For me it wasn't really the religious undertones that drew me in, or comments on dictators irrespective of their politics. But it was about those small dictators who we meet in our day-to-day lives, who find a purpose in a role and then cling onto it for dear life. Now I recently reconnected with an old favourite television show that I hadn't watched for some time, and I wondered to myself, what is there out there about this show online? Is there a fan community? Is there a dedicated website? And when I looked, I found a website that was probably the oldest of its kind online, made by a man who probably did it for all the right reasons. Created the site to celebrate the thing that he loved. ...and to invite others to revel in that enjoyment too. And because it was the first of its kind, it was able to forge links with the original show that it was about... ...that others weren't able to do in later years. So in its own small space online, it became quite important. And it even had a fan club of sorts for people to be able to have some interaction with the website... So I thought to myself, how wonderful, you know, maybe I'll check that out. But then as I read more and more, I found that the rules for joining this society was pages and pages and reams and reams of banal regulations that were clearly not there to make an enjoyable experience for the members, but to protect and cement this man's place as what he perceived to be the top in his field. Now I'm not going to mention what that show was or what the website was, but that's the reason that this episode never really spoke about politics to me, although clearly that is there, but this trait is not just limited to people in government, it can be there in the smallest of ways. So after slogging through an episode that I wasn't particularly fond of last time, this was like a breath of fresh air, everything feels like it comes together, This beautifully artificial backdrop that makes you feel like you're watching a wonderfully produced stage play. And then sailing being on top form with both writing and pacing this through the longer running time. This being too long never entered my mind because I was riveted from start to finish. And then James Whitmore as Benteen just raises the whole thing. A performance so perfectly pitched that you just watch this man transform from one thing to another before your eyes but make it seem so perfectly natural. And in the end he steps over the line so much that we're left in no doubt that what was previously so altruistic had become so self-serving. And I think Sailing knew he had a good one here. And Martin Graham's Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic A comment by Sailing where he says it's my real conviction that this is an above average item with consistently fine performances in which Mr. Whitmore is unique. I think it is probably one of the best Twilight Zones that we've ever done. And who am I to argue with the great man? Because now it's my conviction too that this is not only an above average item but waltzes effortlessly into the top tier of Twilight Zone for me and maybe even my top 10.
0: William Benteen, who had prerogatives. He could lead, he could direct, dictate, judge, legislate. It became a habit, then a pattern, and finally a necessity. William Benteen, once a god, now a population of one.
1: On Thursday, we leave for home. It's nice to get to this stage in the show and be able to discover an episode like that I had never seen it before, but to discover one that that just rockets to the top of my Twilight Zone tier, I guess. But I do hope that going forward, uh, there's a bit more trivia to go around. It's starting to really get thin, and, you know, the last thing I want to do is just kind of commentate through the episode, you know? Uh, because that's the pattern that you kind of fall into. So even though there wasn't much trivia, I tried to make it a bit more about analysis if there's not much... Um, No facts and figures to get into, but we'll see. We'll see what the future holds, and I will adapt accordingly. But we have quite a bit to get through, so I'm going to thank a few people first. I'm going to thank uh, iTunes reviewers. I Hate Snakes Jock, Uh, thank you for your positive review. I appreciate that. And uh, they have said that they would like me to do an episode about the Tower of Terror. Well, it's, it's long been in my mind to do that. And I will try and figure it out. I will try and figure it out. I would really like to do it. But you want to get a bit of inside info on that. You want to speak to someone who, who's kind of... Who is really on the inside of getting it made. And I don't quite know who that person is. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. And then odonata Twenty Eighty. Thank you so much for your review as well. And then we have some new members over in the After Hours Club on Patreon. And they are Mark Davitt, thank you for joining Mark, I hope you find the facilities to your liking. Uh, Lauren James, thank you so much for joining and I hope you found yourself a comfortable chair there as well. Star Trek, Starch Wreck, I like what you've done there. Models and Props has become a member of the After Hours Club as well, thank you so much. And also Uncle Steve, now if you like your Iron Maiden, if you like your heavy metal music, Uncle Steve is your guy. Look up his Iron Maiden podcast if that's your thing. Thank you for joining, Steve, and uh, try and keep the music down a little bit—not too much, you know. We don't want to—we don't want to cramp your style. But thank you, man. Now, speaking of the After Hours Club over there, I've started to do a thing where before I release the episode, I ask the members whether they think it is top tier, mid tier, or bottom tier. And the members voted on on Thursday we leave for home and left some comments as well. Now out of the ones who voted nobody said it was in the bottom tier which is great. Uh, Mid tier 29% put it in the mid tier and 71% put it in the top tier. So a positive result for on Thursday we leave for home uh, no matter how you cut it. Now I won't always read out all of the comments but I will this time just because it's the first time we're really doing this. So, long time friends of the show, and presenter as well over there on the After Hours Club, Al Scherzmer says, One of my two favourite TZs of all time. And then Jason Schwartz says, Long time TZ watcher, but I had never seen this one, I loved it. We'll hear more from Jason later on. Mark David says, I think it's a great story, but once again it could have been tightened up and told better in a half hour format. And then Ella says, this one was really impactful, a real study in human psychology, and how a trait that is a benefit in one circumstance is a fatal flaw in another. Real pathos and top tier, in my opinion. Longtime friend of mine, Uncommon Nasa, says, I've seen it recently. I liked it more than I had in the past, but I'd still leave it as mid-tier. Strong concept, not always delivered smoothly or timelessly. Good example of one that could have been better. In 30 minute form. Another long time friend of the show, Anne Bassano, says, One of my favourite episodes, I sympathise with Benteen's love for planet Earth but fear of the people on it. And then Michael Fernback says, Definitely top tier fourth season and just makes the top tier overall. You feel sympathy for Benteen and can understand why he starts to act the way he does as he feels his authority starting to slip away. The ending is up there with time enough at last, as he and the audience realize the true horror of his fate. Nankerta says, top tier for fourth season, top tier overall. I like the story arc change in perspective that the audience has shown of Benteen. From apparently capable leader to someone whose love for his leadership role, coupled with a fear of what awaits Earth, anonymity, ends up harming himself in the end. A secondary story arc could be how the settlers go along with his leadership for 30 years while it keeps them alive and surviving, but throw him to the curb once the promise of getting to earth becomes a reality. I wish some of the dialogue such as the story told to Jojo or the dressing down he gives the guy who overslept was not over the top, but these are minor quibbles, thanks for all your hard work on these Tom. Great podcast, thank you Curtis. Then my friend Emmy, my co-host, looking at the 80s Twilight Zone in the After Hours Club says, Definitely top tier and probably in my top 10 episodes ever. Likewise. Uh, Whitney Beeler says, I really do not care for Benteen, always I'm embarrassed for how pathetic he becomes. Mark Pepper says, I love this episode, top tier for me and my favourite for season 4 so far. Benteen comes across as a cult leader with his heavy handed manipulation of the colonists. They may have stayed on the planet with him if Colonel Sloane had not stepped in and made the argument for leaving on the ship. My favourite scene is when Sloane goes to the cave and implores Benteen to leave with him. It's very eerie and haunting and for me serves as a metaphor for where Benteen's mind is at this point. And then Joseph Luceno says, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's always stuck out for me as one of season 4's best." and one of the best space-themed episodes overall. So thank you everyone for chiming in. Uh, like I say, I won't always read every comment, but I thought, you know, with it being the first one, it'd be nice to do that, and then I will just take out a selection in future as we uh, discuss each episode. And if you want to join the After Hours Club and join that conversation, then go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And a seat by the fire, and your favourite drink is waiting for you. Now we have some feedback to get through, and now normally I don't read feedback anymore because I like to hear people's voices on the show, but it if you get a few emails, it really it really adds to the time it takes to get the show together. But friend of the show Stephen Peake wrote in, and when I did the episode on Horace Ford, I I figured that it was it was an episode that didn't work for me, but I thought if his central performance worked for someone, it would probably unlock the rest of it. Or if someone had a slightly different perspective on it, that would probably unlock the rest of it and really resonate with someone. It just didn't resonate for me. And we've got a couple of great examples of that. So, so although I don't normally do it, I'm going to read Stephen's email because I think he's got a great... Point of view on it. And he says, Tom, just caught up today on your podcast, a couple of months into my own deep dive through Twilight Zone's 156 episode expanse. Looking forward to hearing the rest and dipping into some of your bonus episodes while awaiting upcoming installments. I thought I would devote my initial missive today to a recent strong reaction I had to an episode and your evaluation of it. As you pointed out in your most recent show, Horace Ford seems like one of those episodes liable to provoke a wide variety of responses in viewers. For me, I must say, I was somewhat flawed to find myself highly affected by it. One might even say devastated and quasi-traumatized. Not that there's any real comparison to be made here, but in my personal list of greatest modern horror films, I rate The Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the top, in part because it feels like a relentless pulverizing nightmare from start to finish. In a wildly different way, that's how Horace Ford struck me on a personal and psychological level. I'm thinking there are a few reasons for this. First, the portrait of this particular oddball of a man's spiral into madness resonates because I recognize intimately the twisted nostalgic impulse that drives him there. My dad passed a few years back, and throughout my processing of that loss, I've found myself often thinking about the way he, like Horace, overly romanticized his small town childhood, often at the expense of the bulk of his adult life and the people within it. I've always felt that without his conscious intention, my dad's distinct rose-colored memory of his hometown and coming-of-age years, though far more subtle than Mr. Ford's, hurt him and his family deeply in ways none of us really ever acknowledged. On a different note, my family has a mottled recent history of various neurotic mental illness and dementia that feels like an ongoing burden to my own ageing process. As a child of the 80s who has struggled for most of his life with OCD, accent on the O, depression and generally anxiety, I find myself uniquely empathic to and deeply moved by the disintegration of Horace on screen. Pat Hingle's performance really works for me, despite its admitted moments of irksome immaturity. On one level, I can buy that Horace has always, to some extent, been the way he is as depicted in this story, but I also think his early middle-age experiences in this episode have hurled him into a despairing death slide of chaotic authenticity. There is more I could say I'm certain, but I'll show some restraint for both our sakes. Having said all this, I'm not suggesting the Horace Ford rises to the upper half of my Twilight Zone tier, what I call the Indispensables, but I do think it weaves its way into my top 50. Imperfect, overlong and repetitive, as it might be at times. I find this outing to be one of the series' finest visceral representations of The Power of a Nightmare, Many thanks for all you've given us through this ongoing Sterling podcast. And that's regards from Steve. Now, I did ask Steve whether it was okay um, to use that email because, you know, there's some personal stuff in there, but Steve very graciously said that this is the strength of, of this community, you know, sharing things like this, sharing ideas and perspectives. And I agree because while that episode didn't work for me as such, you take all these things on and you, you carry it forward to that repeat viewing and maybe it will alter your perception going forward. Um, but even if it doesn't, it, it's great that this episode works so much for someone else. So thank you for your words on that, Steve. And another person it works for is an old friend of mine now, getting on for a decade, uh, Uncommon NASA. Now you know NASA is one of the good friends I've made doing this podcast and I always wish that when he sends a sound clip in I wish we were having that conversation in a bar in New York again like we did uh, after sailing first but it's always good to hear from you man so what I'm gonna do I'm gonna play the rest of the clips and I'm gonna thank I'm gonna thank NASA I'm gonna thank Jason and Andrew who leave some clips on on Thursday we leave for home so I'm gonna play out with those. And I will speak to you next time. Bye for now.
5: What's going on? Tom McCombin Nassie here, checking in on the Twilight Zone podcast. Man, I've been listening to you for a decade, and I can't remember an episode where we fell on opposite ends as much as uh, Incredible World of Horace Ford. Typically, I don't always agree with everything that you put out there and and vice versa in a a one-way street kind of way. But, you know, there are times where you'll like something more than I do or you'll hate something more than I do or, or, you know, maybe you'll like something and I don't like it as much or whatever. But usually we're going the same direction. This one's a little bit different. And and it's interesting because I'm really sort of fascinated with some of the feedback I'm reading like on the flip chat and in general that I've seen online about Incredible World of Horace Ford. It's one of the more divisive episodes, because I think people like me that really love it love it, and people that don't like it find it sort of unwatchable, mainly because of the way the performance was done, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but I, I would I would put this among my favorites in in season four. Let me try to explain what what I really like about the episode um, and the acting in particular. Um, Pat Hingle's so good um, that when he was in Carol for Another Christmas, I think until you guys reviewed it on the Patreon, I didn't even realize that was Pat Hingle. Uh, I knew that Pat Hingle did Commissioner Gordon, and he was great in that too. Um, at least for like ten year old me watching um, the original Batman. But yeah, I mean Pat Hingle's variety and 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 kind of scope uh, is pretty amazing, but. I want to get into his performance here in particular. And, you know, I grew up in, in family situations that involved um, schizophrenia. Um, I had relatives and uh, members of my family, um, let's just say, that, that went through these sorts of things. And, and I actually think that he played it really well, that he had some, some knowledge Um. Either that was baked into the script because Reginald Rose had some knowledge of of how schizophrenia works, or Pat Hingle brought that to the table. But you could tell that a lot of the script is is sort of baked in. There's sort of like a knowledge of the way that people that suffer schizophrenia sort of evolve and react. And there was some thought, um, I think, you know, it's like, well, how did these people even get together? And... And why is his mother there? And and, and there, there's a lot of these questions that if you don't realize what's being done, what's baked into the script, or at least what I think is baked into it, you know, for me, the mother is there and the wife is there because it's known that Horace Ford has had a mental breakdown, that he is he's a, a shell of like the maybe he was sort of like a, an aspirational person at one point. Um, sort of a nostalgic person at one point, but eventually his mental issues that gave him that creativity to, to make him a success at his job, like, sort of crept in. And I think that, you know, the idea of the mother and the wife both living there with him is because he needs them. He needs extra help. His wife can't handle it alone. You know, um, she needs the extra hand. She needs an extra person there that um, understands Horace like from before he had his break and can kind of communicate with him when she can't and then vice versa, you know. Um, I think this is sort of shown through um, his work relationship too. His, His work friend, I remember the character's name, but the guy who was sort of like his buddy, you know, was sort of in on things with his wife, you know, was in on the planning of the party. And they sort of had this silent understanding that they were both looking out for him that they both liked him and they wanted to keep him out of trouble that he would cause for himself because of his mental issues. And I think, you know, if Horace isn't acting in the way that he is, which is obnoxious and crazy and obsessive and and desperate, those other characters don't really have a role to play, particularly in a 60-minute piece. They just don't do anything. You know, they become, you know, naggers or you know, kind of empty characters. The whole point of Pat Hingle's performance is he's bringing them in to his world and they can't particularly understand it. And that's the drama. That's what you're watching. And I think another key point um, as to why there was sort of like a repetitiveness besides the 60-minute length um, to sort of like his episodes and that they're getting worse and worse is because things are getting worse and worse at his job. So... The way that I see it told is that Horace was sort of always a bit on the eccentric side. Eventually he had a break, but he was able to survive it at his job. And a lot of what triggers him to go back to that bad place where he's obsessive and nostalgic to a damaging point is like the pressures of his job, his own failures. There's a point there, you know. The toy that he suggests to his boss is not a good toy. It doesn't make any sense. It's a bad idea. But he can't see that. He sees it as an attack on him and who he is, that his craft is being attacked. And that triggers him. And it starts this domino effect where he becomes more obsessive with the past. He wants to go back to Randolph Street the more that he's uncomfortable with his current condition. And so... I just feel like that friction is is pretty amazing. Maybe it's something that I identify with as a creative, as somebody who who understands, if not has gone through certain mental issues, uh, and certainly has had family members that have. I see Pat Hingle giving an informed, um, you know, performance. There there are things that happen when you are around people that suffer from schizophrenia they will cling to an idea that is so impossible and so absurd as if it's real. And unless you're around somebody like that, I guess Pat Hingle's performance seems over the top. And and especially his wife staying with him and and, and you know, accepting these ideas that he's putting out there and trying to convince him seems kind of like this weird mishmash of things that don't fit. But... You know, In reality, when you have somebody that's dedicated to somebody with schizophrenia, they will sort of negotiate with these completely outlandish ideas because it's obvious that telling somebody flat out that their idea is crazy or that's impossible or that's stupid has failed a million times before. So you, don't, you can't keep doing that. You have to start this negotiation with the person that is addicted to a belief that is imagined or unrealistic or not true. And, I don't know, that's where I fall on the episode, you know? Uh, And I, I just, I felt that. You know, I felt like all the pieces were in place on the chessboard to tell this story about a mental break. I found it interesting that there was some reluctance to put this show in season one because of walking distance, which, if that hadn't been documented, I would have never even put these two episodes together. The coincidental thing is that this episode aired directly after of late i think of cliffordville which is also an episode about somebody who is feeling nostalgic for their past granted for totally different reasons you know that's about greed and like sort of like a lust for success and reliving one's own successes which and that deals with more of a comeuppance than sort of like what we get here but it is Time travel. It is nostalgia. It is obsessing about the past. Um, and it's not just in the same season. It's directly after that episode. So I don't know. I try not to compare episodes. I think a lot of times Twilight Zone episodes come in in, in at least pairs. Um, I have always preferred Willoughby to Walking Distance by a lot. Um, I always felt like Willoughby was serling's second crack at that apple, and he he actually nailed it better the second time around because at the end of the day like i i I find with walking distance it's a good episode there's nothing wrong with it. it's not like i don't like it or i won't watch it if it's on i like walking distance i've grown to like it more as i've gotten older but i identify with like gart williams in will it be a lot more i identify with horace ford in this episode a lot more i like the incredible world of horace ford better than walking distance there i said it I actually like all of the episodes I've mentioned better than Walking Distance. I like No Time Like the Past better. I like Will It Be Certainly better. And I like, of late, I think of Cliffordville better. I think the three time element type episodes that are in season four are three of season four's best. I would put Horse Ford without actually looking at it. I would say that it's probably a top five season four episode for me and i and i i would consider this an upper tier episode of all five seasons it's toward the bottom of the upper tier but it's an upper tier if you split 156 into three i think
3: that i would put it in the top third greetings tom this is jason from northfield minnesota i super excited to be leaving my first voice message. Um, Super bummed that I didn't get in on the 2020 discussion. Um, But like you had said in an earlier podcast, for some people 2020 gave them more time. Uh, But for me, I was like you or the dumpster fire that was 2020 gave me less time to do things. And one of those things was actually listening and keeping up with podcasts. Uh, But I'm all caught up now. I really enjoyed uh, the coverage of the 2020 Twilight Zone, I'm super bummed they're not making it anymore. more. Uh, I, I liked them a lot. Uh, I finally, you know, was able to find that groove of where these aren't the old Twilight Zones. They're their own thing and appreciate them for what they are. And then they're not around anymore. But um, I did. There's some episodes I really, really like. And I will definitely continue to watch. Uh, but I've really enjoyed the season four talk. Um, these are these are episodes I have not seen as much. They don't get as much play. And uh, the, the last uh, podcast I heard was as of late, I think of Cliffordville. I think that's what it's called. And I am not a big fan of that one only because of the fact that the devil wanted money. And that just doesn't make any sense. Mostly because he goes back in time... And so his money doesn't exist. So what money is she getting? I don't. I don't understand. Um, unless we're dealing with some kind of uh, Marvel Universe Avengers time travel uh, system, but I, I don't think that's the case. So I, I just that is my biggest hang-up of the episode. I, there are things I like about it, but the idea that the devil wants money, just that he wants, that she wants the money. That's, that's the weird part. I do like the idea that I got your soul already. I don't care about the rest. Like that's cool. But the idea that the devil just wants money is, is ridiculous to me. Um, but I am calling in mostly, uh, to say how much I enjoyed on Thursday, we leave for home. Uh, mostly because I haven't seen this episode. I thought I'd seen all the Twilight Zones, and here it is, a Twilight Zone that I had not seen. And usually, when I had discovered these in the past, they've always been not very good. I really liked this episode. I—if This is either the first or, or well, maybe there's a, there's a few, but it goes in the top of those that have used the hour format well, at least in my opinion. I really felt like there was a, a first half and a second half. And it was fun, and sci-fi, if that's even a word. In the beginning, uh, the, the you know they had the the meteor shower, and you're like, okay, there's these military guys, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, he was 15 when he got here, and you know they come to get saved, and you're like, oh, awesome! Like, well, where is this gonna go? And just as you're kind of asking yourself that question, he. He starts the whole. Well, I'm I'm used to being in charge, and you see it, you see it start, and oh, uh, it was, it's almost like a reverse of the shelter, uh, where instead of you have the, the mob going after the one, now you have the one who's trying to control the mob, and it's, I I really liked it, and I thought they used the hour well, um, to develop character and to build his kind of. Craziness, desire for power and control, and I just—I really thought it was a great episode. And uh, after a few season four ones that I didn't like, it was nice to have this one. And especially, maybe it's just that it's new, and you know, I got that kid in the candy store feeling, like I've grabbed a hold of uh, of nostalgia. Like I'm a kid watching, you know, Nick at Night up late on a summer night feeling, but I really enjoyed it. And looking forward to the rest of season four, and I hope to uh, add my two cents to the end of the season as it goes. So thank you very much for what you do, Tom. Um, I appreciate it. I love it. I'm glad to support you on the Patreon and and keep going at whatever pace you so desire. Thanks.
6: Hello, Tom, it's Andrew Schneider from Houston here to talk about On Thursday We Leave for Home. This is the one episode I've been waiting for to comment on from season four. It's by far my favorite of the one hour episodes more than He's Alive, more than Death Ship, more than any of the others. And it had been a while since I've seen this one before. In fact, I think the last time I saw it must have been before I took over as the political reporter at my radio station. And I'd forgotten the number of deep themes that are running through this episode. I recently rewatched it. And what struck me the most is about how this is a meditation on power and what it can do to people. Uh, Benteen is clearly somebody who has been shaped by having to wield power, uh, ultimate power, over more than 100 people for decades. And uh, the usual sayings come to mind, you know, Lord Acton's dictum about power corrupting, uh, the biographer Robert Carroll's variation about it, power doesn't corrupt, it reveals I'm not sure which of this really applies in Benteen's case, but it's certainly that he was shaped by it to the extent that he can no longer discern the difference between what's good for him and what's good for the people that he is in control of or he is watching over Um, to the extent that when that power is taken away from him, he can't function. He can't even conceive of himself as apart from that. Uh, which is why he winds up alone at the end of the episode. Um, in relation to that, uh, I was struck by the large focus on religious themes in the episode. Uh, of course, the ship that brought the people to this barren planet is known as the Pilgrim, so that's right out there in the open. Um, but the way that Benteen manages to keep his people together is uh, largely appears based on faith, and uh, so this episode can be seen as, as a meditation on the degree to which faith can be a strength, but also to which it can be a, uh, a form of repression, and uh, the extent to which people see the need to get away from that at the end of the episode is another reason why Benteen finds himself alone. Beyond that, I have to say that uh, I'm always struck by the strong performances of the lead actors in this episode. James Whitmore has long been one of my favorite character actors ever since I saw him in uh, Battleground, which is one of my favorite war movies. And uh, I'd forgotten, though, the extent to which uh, he's balanced and and countered by Tim O'Connor, the actor who plays Colonel Sloan. Uh, I'd, I'd forgotten, among other things, how much he reminded me of a young Cary Grant. Uh, he was he was the perfect person to go up against this strong character of Benteen. The one thing that uh, that I, I'll leave with, and this is I'm guessing something that a number of other people will have noted by this point is that uh, the Pilgrim One landed on the planet in 1991. It's been 30 years that they've been stranded there. So this episode takes place in 2021. World of Difference. With that, I'll sign off and uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts on the
5: episode.
4: Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone... We'll tell you about
5: next
2: week's story after this message.
1: If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com with a clip of around five minutes or so, with your thoughts on any of the episodes in season four so far, or your thoughts on the one coming up. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is.
0: And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, an exercise from the typewriter of Charles Beaumont a sea voyage into the darker regions of the zone. Our stars in alphabetical order, Gladys Cooper, Wilfred Hyde-White, Cecil Calloway, Lee Phillips, and Joyce Van Patten.
4: I'm prepared to pay you double the amount of your tickets if you'll abandon your plan. Not a chance. Mrs. Ranson, you're driving me to extremes. However, if you leave the Lady Anne now, I'll give you the equivalent of $5,000. American dollars, And I'll match that. Making it a total of 10000 Ever since we picked this tub, people have been trying their best to discourage us. I don't know why. Forget it. And leave us alone.
0: Great news, great news. Very important, Mrs. We've been talking to over Millie and old Burgess and the rest of us, and we've come to the conclusion that you won't have to leave the ship after all.
3: What my husband is trying to say is that you won't have to die after all.